2: welcome to the humanist Support podcast my name is mike figueredo and this is the 116th edition of the program today is october 26th and before we get into the news stories i want to take a moment to thank all of our latest patreon and paypal contributors so this week we have anthony edder carrie bear dana jean phoenix Daniel, Shane Eric Fry, Heather Knifer, Ivan, Jackie McCaffrey, Jen Vell, Keith Haxton, Kelly Lane, Exes, Laura Gentit, Micah Tordson, Pete Dion, Sean Knight, and Toby Warren. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you would also like to support the Humanist Report show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you could do so by visiting humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. And I want to send another shout out to Michael Salamone who sent me this media revolt t-shirt. So, if you want to learn more about them, go to mediarevolt.org. So, on today's episode, first of all, we're going to talk about DNC Chairman Tom Perez's response to the backlash he received following his decision to purge progressives from the DNC. And we'll also talk about how progressives are being smeared because of our opposition to Donna Brazil. You can already take a guess. Now, we'll also talk about Donald Trump's warmongering when it comes to drone strikes abroad and why we should officially start to freak out about the escalation of tensions between the United States and North Korea. And when it comes to media bias, we'll talk about Bill Maher's response to Russian troll farms, Fox News' failed attempt to smear Bernie Sanders supporters, an attack on net neutrality published in The Hill by a Republican Party hack and two op-eds from the New York Times that offered Democrats the worst advice ever. Now additionally on today's program, the Republican Party is becoming more insane. One of them wants to end a Reagan-era policy that requires emergency rooms to serve everyone, and another thinks that gay marriage is worse than slavery. Yeah. And finally in this episode, even though I'm late, I'm still going to talk about the ass-whooping that Bernie Sanders gave to Ted Cruz during CNN's tax reform debate. So all of these topics will be covered in today's show. Uh, let's waste no time because we've, we've got a lot. Um, less episodes or less segments than usual, but certainly um, no shortage of content here. So let's go ahead and jump into it. After DNC chairman Tom Perez decided to purge a substantial number of progressives from the DNC, many of which endorsed Keith Ellison over him, he then refilled those positions with people loyal to him, who are also neoliberal Clintonistas. Now, the reason why this purge was necessary, according to him, was that he wanted to increase diversity, but his reasoning doesn't make sense because a lot of the people who he kicked out were also diverse. So one of them was Bab Cypressine. She happens to be a transgender Jewish person. There's also Ray Buckley, a gay American. There's James Zogby, an Arab American. So I mean, if you are actually trying to increase diversity at the DNC, then why are you kicking out diverse people? Well, it looks as though he's purging people who are not loyal to him and is refilling those positions with neoliberal Clintonistas, as I stated. So, he's claiming, though, that that's not actually the case. This has nothing to do with revenge. This has nothing to do with stacking the deck against progressives. It really is just about diversity. But- As Bab Seiberstein puts it, I can't speak for Tom, but you talk about diversity. I'm extremely diverse. Jewish, veteran, transgender, lesbian, grandparent, small business owner. So, I mean, she really does check all the boxes. So how can you purge her and still seriously claim to care about diversity? Because Tom Perez doesn't care about diversity. He's stacking the deck against progressives in the name of diversity, but he has to come up with a better excuse than that because (laughs) refilling the DNC with not just Clinton loyalists, but also anti-minimum wage advocates, lobbyists, and cheaters like Donna Brazile, well, it's clear that you're doing this because you want people in there that were loyal to you, that didn't endorse Keith Ellison. This is about a purge. You were sent there to do exactly what the establishment wanted you to do, and you are serving them very well. So, he, he realizes that, you know, it may look bad, but he took the time to respond to the backlash he received, and this is what he had to say. There are a number
3: of people that I wanted to contact personally uh, who were not uh, reappointed, and I was unable to do that for the simple reason that literally up until the 11th hour, we were still trying to figure things out, but I own that. I didn't, I didn't get a chance to call everyone, I've been trying and I have met with some, but I haven't met with all and I'm going to try and get to the rest, but my mother taught me that when you fall short you should say it to people directly, and rather than saying it one on one to the folks I'm trying to seek out, I simply want to say I am sorry that I didn't do it personally, I simply ran out of time, and that may not be a good excuse, but that was the reality
4: and that was the truth. And so I wanted to say that directly to folks.
2: Okay, so understand that what he's talking about and owning up to is not something any of us care about. We don't care that you didn't speak to them personally before firing them. We care that you'd fire them at all. You are purging progressives from the DNC when you claim to care about unity so much. Well, if you care about unity, then wouldn't you want to increase progressive representation at the DNC because clearly there's not enough progressives on the DNC. Otherwise, Keith Ellison would have beat you. Well, of course not. So instead, he's pretending to own up to his mistake here when none of us are criticizing for that. So I don't really care how you fired them. I care that you did fire them. We take issue with the fact that you're cleansing the DNC of progressives and appointing individuals that were loyal to you and endorsed you and would do the bidding of the Democratic Party's donors. That's what we care about. And who you chose to appoint is a slap in the face to progressives. Now, Ryan Grimm of The Intercept explains, the at-large members chosen by Perez include Harold Ix, a lobbyist for a nuclear energy company, Manny Ortiz, a lobbyist for Citigroup, Joan Dowdell, a lobbyist for News Corporation, the parent company of Fox News, and Jamie Harrison, a former lobbyist for coal companies, big banks, and tobacco companies. Other Democratic influence peddlers chosen by Perez as at-large members are not registered lobbyists but work at well-known corporate lobbying firms. Maria Cardona and Minion Moore, two prominent supporters of the Clinton campaign, Both work at Dewey Square Group. The Dewey Square Group has long served to advise special interests on influencing the policy debate. The company was previously hired by health insurers to fight aspects of the Affordable Care Act and before that, worked for the subprime mortgage company countrywide to build support for the company on Capitol Hill. Dewey Square currently counts major firms such as Walgreens, Tenant Health, Spectra Energy, Capital One, and Apple as clients. Now, besides these people who shouldn't be anywhere near the DNC, serving as at-large members to the DNC, they'll simultaneously act as superdelegates. So, these corporate lobbyists can then turn around and steal the nomination away from Bernie Sanders in 2020 if he wins. That's why we have a problem with you, Tom Perez. Now, furthermore, in appointing Donna Brazile to the Rules Committee, it's really... It's, it's a lot more egregious than I even thought it was initially, because according to Becky Bond, who was a senior advisor to Bernie Sanders, she explains just how important the Rules Committee is. She states, The Rules Committee is where recommendations from the Unity Committee go that's where the grassroots of the party, the people that Keith Ellison represents, are being retaliated against, and that's where you need to look if you want to see if Perez is really trying to unify the party or consolidate power for the Clinton wing of the party. Now, it's already bad enough that the Unity Commission that was referenced here, it is already tipped against Bernie Sanders. He only has seven representatives, while Clinton's wing has nine, and Tom Perez himself has three, so they can vote down any changes proposed by Bernie Sanders supporters and Keith Ellison supporters. But what makes makes it even worse is that can you guess how many ellison and sanders backers are currently serving on the rules committee zero because as claire sandberg points out the bernie wing of the party has zero representation on the rules committee which will determine how the 2020 primary is run what kind of unity is this so your response tom means nothing to us when you made keith ellison The deputy DNC chair, you did that because you claimed you wanted to unify the party. But now what you're doing is you are purging anyone who doesn't agree with you and didn't vote for you and isn't loyal to you from the DNC, and you're putting in place people who are lobbyists who would agree with your corporate agenda. So that's not unity. You are further dividing the party. So, we don't accept anything you have to say here. Now, Donna Brazile, she also spoke out because obviously she received a tremendous amount of backlash and uh, she took the time to respond to some of the haters saying, let me be clear, I don't simply serve candidates or campaigns. I serve those fighting for justice and equality for all. Onwards. Let's stop going backwards and start to look forward. We can all have seats at the table. I have plenty of folding chairs and will scoot over. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Donna, you're not scooting over, though. You probably took the job of someone that was fired because they weren't loyal to Tom Perez. So if you honestly claim to to also want to give progressives an equal seat at the table, you're not scooting over. You're taking a progressive's job. Now, also, she continues here saying, finally, to those who believe the worst about me or others, it's your right to express your views. But I'm going to keep trying to reach you. Believe the worst about you, Donna? You fucking cheated during the primary you gave hillary clinton an unfair advantage we don't believe the worst about you we know the worst about you because you showed that your behavior is so unethical that even cnn wanted to disassociate themselves with you so it's not just that there's all these rumors floating around about you that are not true and are unfair it's because of the things that you've done in the past your unethical behavior which is why we don't like you why you are being opposed now But she literally does not get this because she actually took the time to send a direct message to the Save Main Street Twitter account because they spoke against her. And she asked them, why the hate? Why not reach out? What did you or the haters do to protect our democracy? Seriously, why the hate? Donna, (laughs) you colluded with the DNC and Hillary Clinton's campaign to rig the primaries against the candidate that would have defeated Donald Trump. And now, because of your hubris, we have Donald Trump as president. It's not about hate. It's about what you did to put us in perhaps the worst political predicament of our lifetimes. Donald Trump is president. So, if you're wondering why you're getting pushback, then I question your sanity because it should be very evident why people don't like you. You cheated. You're a cheater. You were fired from CNN for cheating. How is that difficult to understand? I don't get why you're confused here. I don't get it. I'm, I'm clearly puzzled. I'm more puzzled than you. How can you not understand why people don't like you, Donna? Now, she got a response from Save Main Street after sending out this really creepy direct message, and I think that Save Main Street nailed it. They said, this is not about hate. This is about honesty. This is about saving our democracy. You were not honest during the primary. You cheated and you lied about cheating. You supported Debbie Wasserman Schultz when she was lying and cheating to stack the deck for Hillary. The Dem leadership must consist of folks who were honorable. You blew it, Donna. Oh, and by the way, those supporting Bernie were fighting like hell for democracy as you and the DNC leaders were stomping all over it during the primary. You are some kind of work. This is surreal. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, the fact that she's confused about the backlash she received after being appointed back to the DNC after cheating... My head's about to just pop off my body. I don't, I don't know what to say. Tom Perez and Donna Brazil, they are being intentionally obtuse here. They are pretending as though they don't know what's really happening and why progressives are angry with them when they know, they know. If they don't know, then I don't, they shouldn't be serving at any job. They should just retire because clearly you're incapable of functioning like a normal human being if you can't actually see why people don't like you after you fuck them over time and again. And also, she has basically gone off the deep end and she has all but called for war with Russia at this point, even going so far as to agree with Dick Cheney. So, this is is who is leading the DNC. So, as you all know, last week, the DNC received backlash for not only purging progressives, but appointing Donna Brazil, a cheater, to the rules committee of all places. And now, after getting so much pushback from progressives, Donna Brazil, along with other DNC operatives and apologists, are speaking out, and they are defending themselves. But can you guess how they're pushing back against progressives? They are claiming that we're racist because we're opposed to Donna Brazil. It's not because she's a cheater and lied about cheating— it's because of the color of her skin. Now, if you're not surprised by this tactic, then you're not alone, because this is the same smear tactic that they've used in the past to discredit progressives, and it is absolutely sickening. Because since they can't debate with us on the merit of our arguments, since we have legitimate reasons to be opposed to... To Donna Brazil, well, then they have to resort to smear tactics. Now, one example we saw is on Twitter from journalist Tom Watson, who notified his followers that there's a racist petition going around created by someone who is posing. As a Bernie Sanders supporter, demanding that Perez replace Donna Brazil. he states, Don't get sucked into a fake battle, folks. Donna is a great Democrat and is going nowhere, and the petition is a disgrace. Now, it's pretty evident that he said that this is only a petition that's being circulated by people posing... As Bernie Sanders supporters, because if he says that they're only posing as a Bernie Sanders supporter, then he kind of gives himself cover. He gives himself plausible deniability, because what he's doing here is pretty clever. In saying that this petition was created by a fake Bernie supporter— then there's this underlying implication that, well, you know, a Bernie Sanders supporter, someone who's a real Bernie Sanders supporter, they would never circulate a petition who calls on a woman of color to resign from the DNC now, would they? Wink, wink. Why would they do that? Why would they want Donna Brazil? a celebrated Democrat, to not be on the DNC unless they're racist. So I don't even believe this is from a true Bernie supporter. Wink, wink, wink. I mean, that's, that's really what's happening here. Now, he shows us exactly why this petition is racist by saying, quote, racism is disgusting. Will anyone in the so-called Sanders wing repudiate this hatred? And the petition says we can find better black women to be on the committee. I'll repudiate that statement because I think that you can criticize Donna Brazil without invoking her race. And to do that, you're you're just an idiot. So I unequivocally condemn the individual who made that statement. However, the problem is that that's not the petition. The actual petition that's being circulated was created by Paula Jean Sweringen, and it doesn't say that. It says... Reject Donna Brazil for the Rules Committee for the National Democratic Party. Appointing Donna Brazil as a member of the DNC Rules Committee is unacceptable. Miss Brazil forwarded debate questions to her preferred primary candidate, but DNC rules mandate neutrality in the primary. This appointment is counterproductive for fostering unity within the party. We therefore call on Chairman Tom Perez to rescind this appointment in favor of someone who will inspire confidence that the party is focused on finding common ground. So, the reason cited for her to be removed Moved was based purely on substantive reasons. There's no mention of her race there by Pauline Jean Swirin. This petition, there's no indication that it's racist in any way, shape, or form. But Tom Watson called the petition racist when it's not racist. And the example of the racist comment he provided is isn't attached or representative of the actual petition, so he's either being intentionally disingenuous or he's an incredibly irresponsible journalist. And yes, that comment that he cited, wherever he found it, it's unacceptable. But if progressives are forced to come out and repudiate any and all racism against Donna Brazile, well then, will Tom Watson here come out and repudiate the racist attacks against Nina Turner? What about the sexist attacks we see against progressive women like Katie Halper and Nimiki Konst? Are you going to repudiate those attacks, Tom? I'll wait. So... Tom Watson here is being incredibly disingenuous, but he's not alone because BuzzFeed also released an article that makes the same implication about progressives titled, Drama Unfolds Between Democrats Over Rumor About Ousting Three Black Women DNC Members, and it covers a rumor that aims to perpetuate the same myth that progressives are against women of color serving on the DNC. So they explain a rumor that pro-Bernie Sanders Democrats have proposed removing three prominent black women as at-large members of the Democratic Democratic National Committee, set off a fury here at the party's fall meeting, lighting up tensions between anti-establishment progressives and Chairman Tom Perez as Democrats rushed late Thursday to find out where the rumor had come from and what motives drove it. The names circulating among Democrats were Leah Daughtry, former DNC convention chair, Minion Moore, veteran Democratic strategist, and Simone Sanders, former National Press Secretary to Bernie Sanders. By Thursday evening, the rumor was Daughtry Moore and former DNC chair, Donna Brazil. Two Democratic sources, said Zogby and Jane Kleeb, another prominent Sanders supporter and the chair of the Nebraska Democratic Party, discussed plans to introduce an alternate slate of 75 at-large members. One of those Democrats said the alternate slate would be less diverse than the one put forward by Perez earlier this week. In a statement, DNC spokesperson Zadl Hinojosa told BuzzFeed News, "...we are proud of the unprecedented diversity of this year's slate of at-large DNC members." We must come together in unity and embrace our diversity in order to win elections up and down the ballot, as if we don't embrace diversity. But the three women who were initially named here, we have uh, Leah Daughtry, Minyon Moore, and Simone Sanders. First of all, Simone Sanders is on our side. She's a progressive, so it makes no sense that progressives would want her ousted. Second of all, Mignon Moore, she's a lobbyist. So, I could understand that one, but I think most um, progressives don't even know who she is, and when it comes to Leah Daughtry, nobody knows anything about her. The only thing we know is that she's friends with Donna Brazile. So, I mean, this doesn't make any sense, but when it comes to the three women, Donna Brazile was initially omitted, and I think that this omission is actually pretty telling. Why? <laughs> well, I mean, this it's really simple. If some random DNC insider leaks stories to the press about how progressives are against other women of color serving in the DNC, well, then this might actually lend credence to the implication that we're sexist if we don't support Donna Brazil. So they claim here that it's not just Donna Brazil. See, there's other black women who they don't support because they want to then be able to argue well, you know, these progressives, they claim to be against Donna Brazil for substantive reasons, but for some conspicuous reason, they're also against other women of color serving in the DNC. Maybe, maybe it's the case that. They just have a problem with women of color serving in powerful positions within the DNC. Maybe they just want all of their white males to be represented. That's what this is about. That's the underlying implication here. It's because they want to hide behind identity politics in order to smear progressives. Notice how the article only reported on the, quote, rumor that progressives wanted to oust other women of color from the DNC. I mean, there was no evidence to back up this claim. Now, it's not unreasonable for us to assume that the DNC is using this as a smear tactic because they've done this in the past on numerous occasions. In fact, in an email to John Podesta, the current DNC chairman, then Labor Secretary Tom Perez, demonstrates how to effectively use identity politics to smear Bernie Sanders and his supporters after they learned that Hillary didn't do too well with millennial voters, saying when we do well there, meaning South Carolina, then the narrative changes from Bernie kicks ass among young voters to Bernie does well only among white liberals that is a different story and a perfect lead into south carolina where once again we can work to attract young voters of color and tom perez is not alone because during the campaign hillary clinton also invoked identity politics and her gender specifically in order to evade legitimate criticism
5: senator sanders is the only person who i think would characterize me uh a woman running to be the first woman president as exemplifying the establishment how
2: convenient. <laughs> now, the actual subject of this video, Donna Brazil, she also uses identity politics to evade criticism because, as you'll all recall, last year when TYT's Jordan Sheridan asked her whether or not she should apologize to voters for... Uh, leaking a debate question to Hillary Clinton. This is how she used identity politics to evade criticism. But what about you passing a question to Hillary Clinton's campaign, the town hall before? You're Yes, a journalist asking a question is badgering you. Do you see the pattern here? Anytime you criticize them for substantive reasons, they invoke gender or race in order to evade criticism. That, to me, is is just so weird. Imagine if I, anytime I was criticized, because I get criticized by Hillary Clinton supporters all the time, imagine if anytime they criticized me, I invoked sexuality. If I said, if you criticize me, well, it must be because you're homophobic, because I married a dude, so uh, clearly you don't like me only because of my sexuality i mean imagine if i did that people would think i'm a crazy person and they wouldn't take me seriously but yet we have high-ranking officials within the democratic party using this idiotic tactic which is incredibly disingenuous all the time to evade criticism Now, let's go back to what the uh, DNC spokesperson said. We are proud of the unprecedented diversity of this year's slate of at-large DNC members. We must come together in unity and embrace our diversity in order to win elections up and down the ballot. So, this, this suggests here that progressives don't actually care about diversity because since we are allegedly against other women of color serving in positions at the DNC, well, we must just be against diversity altogether. Not true. Look at the lineup of Justice Democrats. They're more diverse than the DNC's lineup. So, if we were against diversity, wouldn't you just see all of the Justice Democrats as straight white males? And see, the good thing about Justice Democrats is that they're actually progressives, which is what matters the most. Because simply just being more diverse than Republicans doesn't negate from the DNC's corporatism that actually harms the groups they claim to care so much about. And if diversity was the only factor that they were making and putting people into positions in the dnc then why wouldn't you just put uh women of color who are republicans on the dnc because if all you care about is diversity itself and policy has no bearing on your decision to appoint people as you are claiming here then why not just put republicans and conservatives on the dnc so their argument, it, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And obviously, we're not against Donna Brazil because of her race or her gender. That goes without saying. I shouldn't even have to say that, but I have to say it apparently because we are constantly smeared as racist and sexist. But we don't like Donna Brazil because she cheated during the primary. She gave Hillary Clinton an unfair advantage over Bernie Sanders. She sent out an email to Clinton's campaign and gave them a question in advance. She admitted to doing this, and then when she was initially confronted about this, she lied. For the record, uh, I have never been privileged as long as I've been uh, not just a part of CNN, which, let me just say, of how proud I am to have been um, a contributor for CNN and other news outlets. And no one has ever, ever shared questions with any of us uh, involved in uh, CNN as uh I couldn't possibly have shared a question with Hillary Clinton's campaign in advance because at CNN, we just don't get questions in advance. Meanwhile, a couple months later here, she says in an op-ed for Time, sending those emails was a mistake I will forever regret. So she cheated and then initially lied about cheating. That's the reason why we don't like Donna Brazil. That's the reason why, of all people, she shouldn't serve on the rules committee because, clearly, she breaks the rules. She doesn't know how to follow the rules. There's a reason why CNN fired her and her colleagues, like Jake Tapper at CNN, said that they were horrified by her actions because it's incredibly unethical. The reason why they were asking Hillary Clinton a question about the death penalty was because they wanted to put her in a tough position and actually challenge her. But Donna Brazil Knew that that was one of Hillary Clinton's weaknesses. So she leaked that question in advance to Hillary Clinton to make her look better because she likes Hillary Clinton. She was expecting a job from Hillary Clinton if she won the White House. That's what this is about. Donna Brazil cheated. That's why we are against her. We, I don't look, I couldn't care less about anyone else. There's a lot of really egregious people like Dan Halpern, who's an anti-minimum wage advocate, who are serving on the DNC, but of all people to be on the rules committee, Donna Brazile is not that person. We're against her because of her unethical past behavior, not because of her color. And you know that, but the DNC is still choosing to invoke identity politics because they have no other way to respond to our legitimate criticism of Donna Brazile. And it's just pathetic. So this week, I wanted to shine a spotlight on two opinion pieces that were published in The New York Times, both of which offer the Democratic Party establishment perhaps the worst advice I've ever seen. <laughs> so one of them is an article by Steven Ratner who argues that Medicare for All will actually, quote, "sink." Democrats. And the other is by Douglas Schoen, who argues that the Democrats actually need Wall Street, contrary to popular belief. Now, I don't even have to read you anything more than the titles of these articles in order for you to grasp just how nonsensical and idiotic they both are, because what they're basically telling the party is to completely abandon what their own base wants and do only what their donors want. I mean, that's a recipe for disaster. And if Democrats do this, they will be even less popular than they are now. But let's go ahead and hear them out anyway. So... We'll go to Mr. Ratner's argument about how Medicare for All is actually bad for the party. So he argues Mr. Sanders, who of course isn't even a registered Democrat, of course, is banging on about what he calls Medicare for All, a government-run plan that would provide health care coverage for every American. But now, the crusty Vermont Independent wants to be a senatorial pied piper for Democrats. He has made his proposal into a kind of litmus test for who is a good Democrat. Crad inveigling 16 of his colleagues, more than a third of Senate Democrats, into endorsing it. A goodly number of those senators are presidential hopefuls, leaving their prospective campaigns open to attack from Republicans, salivating to capitalize on an idea that has historically been a political graveyard. Remember Hillary Care? As a centrist Democrat, I'm scared to see my party pulled into positions that are both bad politics and dubious policy, and I'm disappointed that a few of our party's moderates are willing to resist the freight train that's coming at us from the left. But the Sanders approach didn't work for George McGovern in 1972 or Michael Dukakis in 1988, and I don't believe it will work for Democrats in 2018 or 2020. Yes, recent polls seem to indicate rising support for single-payer, but when factors like whether taxes would be raised or the Affordable Care Act would be repealed or introduced, the consensus swings to opposition. Okay, first of all, I can't not address just how unprofessional it is for a New York Times journalist, the supposedly most prestigious outlet in the country, to refer to the most popular politician in the country as Krusty. What kind of shit is that? Unbelievable. Now, everything that he's saying here, he's using arguments against Bernie Sanders As though this is the 1970s. Well, you know, Bernie, Bernie's plan didn't work for George McGovern. It didn't work for Michael Dukakis. In other words, hey, all of you voting age people who have no idea who any of these people are, I know that you want Medicare for all, but it didn't work in the past, so we shouldn't try it again, even though a majority of the country wants it, even though a plurality of Republicans wants it. We shouldn't try that because it's dubious policy. Never mind the fact that it works really well in Canada. But, you know, even though other countries have it, it's still dubious policy because I say so. And he says here, as a centrist Democrat, you know, I'm scared to see my party shift to the left. Well, I hate to tell you this, but you're not a centrist. You are a right winger because when we have an Overton window in this country that is skewed so far to the right. If you're a centrist in the Democratic Party, you're just a right-winger. I'm sorry. Now, he at least acknowledges that recent polls indicate rising support for single-payer, but then he talks about how, well, you know, people don't want to see the Affordable Care Act repealed. If currently Americans do only support single-payer if the Affordable Care Act will remain in place, then all we have to do is explain to them (laughs) why the Affordable Care Act will no longer be needed. That, that doesn't even make sense as an argument. So I've got really bad news for this author. The year is 2017. We have a whole new generation now that is eligible to vote that doesn't even know who Michael Dukakis is or George McGovernor is. Times change. Times do change. And if you honestly think that Republicans are going to have the edge, because he said that, he said they're salivating over Democrats wanting to endorse Medicare for All, then You're just as idiotic as the Republicans who think that, because times have changed. Voters are on our side on this issue. We've monopolized the debate on this issue, but I don't want to spend too much time on his argument because I want to get to Douglas Shones, who tells us exactly why Democrats need to continue being sold out to Wall Street. He says, Democrats should keep ties with Wall Street for several reasons. The first is an ugly fact of politics, money. Maintaining ties to Wall Street makes economic sense for Democrats and keeps their coffers full. A second reason Democrats should keep ties with Wall Street, despite being what the Democratic left says. America is a center-right, pro-capitalist nation. A January Gallup poll found that moderates and conservatives make up almost 70% of the country, while only 25% of voters identify as liberal. Even in May of 2016, when Senator Sanders made redistribution a central part of his platform, Gallup found that only about 35% of Americans had a positive image of socialism compared with 60% with a positive view of capitalism. Third, it is hypocritical for Democrats to maintain ties to Silicon Valley and then turn their backs on the very people who help finance its work. The financial industry brings to market the world's most innovative products and platforms that expand the economy and create jobs. Fourth, demonizing Wall Street does nothing to bridge the widening gaps in our country. Wall Street has its flaws and abuses, which were addressed in part by the Dodd-Frank financial reform law. And yes, the American people are certainly hostile to and suspicious of Wall Street, but using this suspicion and hostility as the organizing principles for a major political party will consign Democrats to permanent minority status. Well, how could that possibly be the case when they're already beholden to Wall Street? Can you name a Democrat that was more sold out to Wall Street in recent years than Hillary Clinton? She raised more money than Donald Trump, and guess what? She still lost. It's almost as if being a corporate sellout and being a Wall Street shill is bad for your electoral chances if you're a Democrat. I mean, I, I, I can't even comprehend how deluded you have to be to think that a Democrats' ties to Wall Street is somehow a strength, and he talks about well, you know, there's just a, the practical fact of the matter, you know, that money is needed for elections. Yeah, but if you if you choose to reject corporate donations well, Bernie Sanders showed us what happens, then the people will see that you really represent them and you'll raise money through grassroots methods. But if someone is a sellout like Hillary Clinton, why would we donate our hard-earned cash to her if we know she's not even going to represent us? Because she already took millions from Wall Street. Why would we do that? See why that's not a good idea? Now, he also cites polls that validate his argument, like polls from Gallup and whatnot. But here's the thing about these types of polls when you talk about bernie sanders and you cite polls about how we disapprove of socialism that doesn't actually prove your point because when you look at the policies what bernie sanders and progressives are fighting for they're all majoritarian policies they have a majority of support among the public so regardless if americans may be symbolically conservative well operationally speaking policy wise they're liberal the polls show that Hence why a majority of us actually think that money in politics is a bad thing. Hence why a majority of us want Medicare for All, tuition-free public colleges and universities. Why a majority of us want to raise the minimum wage. It's because, operationally, we are liberal as a country. So, I could cite just as many polls showing how Americans are on our side when it comes to policy— to blow your poll out of the water. And I love how he talks about the American people are hostile to Wall Street. I wonder why. It's almost as if they crashed the economy in 2008. Why would we not be angry about that? Are you not angry about that? I'm pretty angry about that. And Dodd Frank did not sufficiently rein them in. It didn't. And furthermore, once it was passed, it already was subpar. But over the years, it was watered down more and more by attacks on it from Republicans. Is it better than nothing? Sure, I guess. I'll take that over nothing. But it didn't sufficiently rein them in. They are still running amok. They are still buying and controlling politicians and doing exactly what they want. So I just, I I don't understand how journalists who are published in the most prestigious news outlet in the country, not that, that's not my opinion, certainly, but how they can be, so idiotic in the claims that they make. I mean, these are arguments that are easily debunked. They're citing misleading polls to contribute to their narrative. I mean, the way that they are spreading propaganda on behalf of special interests, I mean, you're giving Fox News a run for their money when it comes to propaganda and whatnot. So, I I could not talk about these two insane opinion pieces. Um, Here's my opinion. New York Times, if you really want to claim to be America's most trusted news source and the most prestigious news outlet in the country, don't publish garbage like this. I mean, the New York Times has some really great geopolitical reports about foreign policy. They have great reports about, you know, other countries. But when you publish stuff like this, it just brings down the legitimacy of the New York Times. I mean... If the Democrats took these guys' advice, they would never win again, and they claim that they have to take their advice in order to be electorally viable again. It's the opposite. With friends like these giving you bad advice, I mean, you might as well not have any friends. It's like if you, if you were an alcoholic and everyone in your social circle told you that you needed to drink even more, well, obviously, that's not what you need to do. That's not the correct course of action. You have to correct the problems, not <laughs> not add to the problems that you already have. President Donald Trump claims that, in spite of him constantly threatening North Korea over Twitter, he is, in fact, trying to pursue a diplomatic solution, and he's working cooperatively with China to do that. Now, that's all well and good, but the problem is that he is doing really ominous things that will hinder any sort of diplomatic solution, and part of the problem is his bombastic rhetoric. Now, on Fox News, he made a statement that would undoubtedly escalate tensions between the US and North Korea further
4: we're prepared for anything we are so prepared like you wouldn't believe you would be shocked to see how totally prepared we are if we need to be Uh, would it be nice not to do that the answer is yes will that happen who knows who knows Maria
2: you're the president Donald you do know how this is going to end you get to choose regardless of how diplomatic talks turn out now even though Donald Trump says a lot of dumb things and there's a constant stream of hot air coming out of that hole in his face, we do have reason to believe that this isn't just political rhetoric and that he's not just posturing and that he may actually be preparing to invade or bomb North Korea. And there's disturbing evidence for this. So, according to Common Dreams, they report, as President Donald Trump continues to ratchet up tensions between the U.S. and North Korea through saber-rattling on Twitter and in television interviews, the U.S. has quietly begun preparing to put nuclear-armed B-52 bombers on 24-hour ready alert, a status not seen since the end of the Cold War. Now, national security analysts are pushing back against this, saying that this is not really anything that um, we should be concerned about. But this this is a huge step to escalate tensions between the United States and North Korea. But that's not even the most terrifying aspect of the story. So, the media is not talking about a really huge move towards escalation that I only learned about through watching Secular Talk. So, credit to Kyle Kalinske for talking about what nobody else seems to care about. Well... According to journalist Steve Herman, he reports that on tonight's Nelson Report, a reputable newsletter on Northeast Asia, removing personal assets from Republic of Korea, now advisable, says senior administration officials. So, you don't recommend that the assets should be removed from a country unless there's going to be war. So, Steve Herman goes on to report: senior administration officials speaking privately or on background warn to take so seriously the possibility of a U.S. preemptive strike or kinetic action against North Korea's growing nuclear missile threat that removing one's personal assets from South Korea is now advisable. And similar warnings have been informally given to some NGOs operating in the DPRK. Given the rise of foreigners becoming hostages in the event of hostilities, on the peninsula. The sources for this are unimpeachable, but let us be clear. So far as we know, this is informal, not official. However, these officials are not saying the president has already decided he will risk ordering military action against North Korea to prevent a successful OCBM. They are saying that reports of U.S. preparations must be taken seriously by Beijing, Pyongyang, Tokyo, and Seoul and are not just contingency hypotheticals. Of course, we cannot repeat enough times that there's a cywag game being played seriously by everyone involved, and has been for years. So, of course, everything has to be taken with a grain of salt, but the feel this time is different. We've never heard the kind of private warning from USG folks here before. If anything, it's always been calmed down. So why the clear escalation now? Gamesmanship or fair warning? Regardless, we have to take this seriously. Because if we don't, I mean, I can't even begin to comprehend the level of destruction war with Korea would bring. So if North Korea gets any any sort of hint that the United States is actually going to launch a preemptive strike against them, what are they going to do? Well, obviously, they're going to either bomb Seoul, they're going to bomb Guam, they could bomb Tokyo, and I don't even know, I mean... There would be millions of people that would potentially die as a result of this. Now, the option that Donald Trump needs to pursue is to just stop talking shit with North Korea. They've constantly been doing this. They always saber rattle against the United States. It's one way that the UN regime cultivates legitimacy is they create this common enemy, which is the United States. And they say, look, they're the enemy. They want to invade us. And it's what they do. They're going to continuously talk shit. And Republicans don't get this about Iran as well. It's another way that they cultivate legitimacy with the people. They constantly say things that are hateful towards America. But that's what that's what they do. That's not going to stop. But what we can control is our actions. And bombing them certainly wouldn't help with the impression that they have of us. So at this point, it's officially time to freak the fuck out when it comes to North Korea. Um, you know, I was... I was thinking that maybe this, this debate between you know Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un might peter out over the years or go nowhere, but this is, this is a whole new story we're talking about here. It's, it's officially time to be worried, um, and I'm not saying this to be hyperbolic. There is the possibility that Donald Trump could be using all of this as a means of scaring Kim Jong-un, but even to push his buttons that far, you could catalyze a strike from North Korea on one of our allies. So, even if this is just gamesmanship, that's still dangerous. You're taking it too far. If you really want to pursue a diplomatic solution, then you have to stop doing this. You actually have to stop escalating the situation because you make diplomacy that much more difficult to achieve in this circumstance. So... Donald Trump is provoking a madman. And even though Donald Trump himself is a crazy person, yes, it is the case that Kim Jong-un is also a crazy person. I really don't know who's the bigger man, baby. These are both two idiots who have nuclear weapons. And that is a scary, explosive situation that is internationally destabilizing. So we've got to keep an eye on the situation because the neocons have been wanting this forever. Donald Trump may just be crazy enough to do something that is... Unthinkable. So we've got to pay attention to this situation and take it very seriously. Anytime Donald Trump says something dumb on Twitter, don't just laugh at him. Take it seriously. Take him at his word because we can't afford not to at this point. So George W. Bush, as we all know, is a war criminal and he's the one who initiated drone wars in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia. But the drone wars didn't really get increased until Obama took office. That was one of the first things he did. He ramped up drone strikes in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia. And these drone strikes were killing so many civilians that they were forced to pull back on these drones because they just weren't hitting the targets that the CIA was claiming they were hitting. And they weren't acknowledging all of the so-called collateral damage that they were creating. Now... Once Donald Trump was elected, one of the first things he did when he took office, just like his predecessor Barack Obama, was ramp up drone strikes yet again. And he increased them exponentially, which is something that you shouldn't do because Obama made this mistake and he had to learn the hard way from his mistake. So, knowing that this leads to civilian casualties, why would you do this? Well, This is all about helping out the military-industrial complex. And also, Donald Trump has a lot of neoconservatives in his ear. But it's not just as simple as him ramping up the drone war, because he's actually doing more to loosen restrictions that prevent us from killing even more civilians. So as Maha Hilal of Common Dreams reports, Barely a month after President Donald Trump announced plans to deepen and extend the now 16-year-old war in Afghanistan, reports surfaced of plans to expand another signature Obama-era policy. The Drone War. Specifically, the New York Times reported in late September that the administration is relaxing Obama-era restrictions on who can be targeted and removing a requirement that strikes receive high-level vetting before they're carried out. According to the paper, the new rules would also ease the way to expanding such gray zone acts of sporadic warfare into new countries, expanding the program's already global footprint. Across administrations, the use of drones has increased exponentially throughout the course of the War on Terror. Even before the rule change, Micah Zenko of the Council on Foreign Relations estimated that the pace of drone strikes and special forces raids had increased from one every 5.4 days under President Obama to one every 1.25 days under President Trump. In addition to increasing the pace of these operations, the Trump administration has also loosened guidelines designed to protect civilians in areas like Yemen and Somalia and overseen a notable increase in civilian casualties in war zones like Iraq and Syria." We need to understand the excesses of the war on terror as a trajectory. The abuse of power under one administration leads to the abuse of power under another. Trump may be driving it more recklessly, but he's still operating a machine the Obama administration built. And when you look at the numbers as to just how many civilians are dying as a result of drone strikes, I don't even know how to put words to it. So, if you if you look at a report from Air Wars, there were 1,300 reports Of civilian deaths in iraq and syria in the month of march alone that was an increase three times compared to february so that was in march now this is what donald trump is doing now which will exacerbate that problem even more so donald trump is a bloodthirsty war criminal He's doing all of this knowing what will happen. But what did he say again during the campaign trail? You
4: have to take out their families.
2: Oh, that's right. We have to take out the families of ISIS. Well, it seems like we're killing more innocent civilians than actual terrorists. So what's the point of these drones then? If we're not actually taking out the targets that we are intending to take out, then why would we continue to do this?
4: When you get these terrorists you have to take out their families take out their families take out their families take out their families
2: even if we're not calling this warfare and wars i mean we're invading these countries we are occupying pakistan yemen somalia how can we be in so many countries and not have the american media even bat an eyelash it makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever the drone war i mean besides the iraq war it's one of the greatest injustices of our time. I think this is going to go down as one of the most egregious things in the history books because how could it not? The rate to which we're killing civilians, is it's not acceptable. So just like George W. Bush and Barack Obama, I think it is safe to characterize Donald Trump as a war criminal and doing things that will knowingly lead to the deaths of civilians you're a war criminal, and now guess what? It's time to lock Donald Trump up. It's time to prosecute him. Now, the the funny thing is that all of our leaders, be it George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and now Donald Trump, presumably, they don't want to sign on to the International Criminal Court. And this is because they know that if they subject themselves to the jurisdiction of the ICC, then... They're going to be the ones that get arrested because they're all war criminals. It doesn't matter. I mean, there's continuity when it comes to warfare. It doesn't matter if you elect a Democrat or a Republican. They're going to continue to kill civilians abroad with your tax dollars. Um, Meanwhile, we're going to complain about the cost of health care in this country and tuition free public colleges and universities. It's absolutely egregious. Our priorities are completely ass backwards. And Donald Trump is a warmonger that should be prosecuted just like his predecessors. So the Republican Party, they're not only moving further to the right, but they're simultaneously becoming more and more insane with every passing day. And we know this because the policies that they're proposing are so far outside the range of respectability that you can't support them Unless you're a lunatic. Now, we had a perfect example of this on MSNBC when Tennessee lawmaker Diane Black talked about repealing a Reagan-era law that protects people from dying.
5: So so let me tell you, Chuck, I'm an emergency room nurse. There are people that came into my emergency room that I, the nurse, was the first one to see them, that I could have sent them to a walk-in clinic or their doctor the next day because of a law that Congress put into place to say, no, I have to treat everybody that walks in that emergency room. You took away our ability to be able to say, no, an emergency room is not the proper place. And then you put a burden on top that to say, you must do that. So you it would
3: get cur- rid of a oh. law that mandates emergency rooms to see every patient that shows up.
5: I would get rid of a law that says that uh, you, you are not allowed as a healthcare care professional to make that decision about whether someone can be appropriately treated the next day or to walk in clinic or at their doctor. Right. But we must treat everybody that walks in whether you've had a sore throat for uh, a week. We must see them, and that crowds the emergency room. It drives the cost of emergencies up. And so, yeah, if someone comes in from an auto accident, I don't want to ask whether they have insurance or not, I'm going to take care right. of them. But what it did is crowd my emergency room where I work, and disallowed me from using my good judgment skills, of which I was trained to do, and doctors are as well. And it's the federal government said, you must, and you can't make those decisions. And I think that was a poor thing for us to do. It's driven the cost of health care up. And especially in the emergency rooms.
2: So make no mistake about it. She's talking about the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, otherwise known as IMTALA, which was passed by President Reagan in 1986. So this is how insane the Republican Party has become. A law that Reagan passed is now too liberal for today's modern Republican Party. She says here that this law took away our ability to say no in emergency rooms and say that, you know, it's not the place for them to seek the treatment that they're seeking. But if you don't see them and you just turn them away based on their symptoms, then how would you know that there's not something more serious going on? And understand why MTALA exists. It's because people without insurance, well, if they go to a doctor, they'll get turned away. They'll be told to go get insurance. So knowing that at the emergency room they can't be refused service, then they go there to seek treatment. And if they are not able to get seen at an emergency room, then people with just general illnesses, it's going to get worse. The problem will be exacerbated and this will lead to people dying. What is wrong with you? How could you be against something? That's a no-brainer. Now, she says it's bad because it drives costs of healthcare up in emergency rooms and crowds emergency rooms, but this is only a symptom of our cruel healthcare system that doesn't offer free healthcare to everybody. So if you really don't want emergency rooms to be crowded, then what you need to do is start petitioning every single one of your colleagues to support Medicare for All. Have you co-sponsored John Conyers' Medicare for All bill? hr 676 because if you haven't then apparently you don't really care about this but this is a nurse she says that you know we should or she implies certainly that we should accept her argument because she has experience she's a nurse therefore she has more credibility but all this tells me is that you're the worst nurse ever you suck at your job. If, if anybody sees you as the nurse at the emergency room, then they should run the other way and go to another emergency room because clearly you don't give a shit about people. In repealing this law, you know people will die. You're a nurse. You know this firsthand. So how could you support something that's a no-brainer even to right-wing conservatives like Reagan, Republican Jesus? How could you be against that? It shows just how crazy the Republican Party has become. To be against something like EMTALA, which nobody would question before, you have to be a lunatic and to be a nurse. I think that makes it even more egregious. She thinks that this helps her argument. No, this just goes to show you that you are an objectively bad person. You want EMTALA to be repealed so that way you can turn people away at the emergency room and this will lead to people dying. So if Republicans are honestly going to think that they're going to sell the American people this idea that more people should be turned away and not given health care? They're not. Because if you, if you don't have health insurance, you go to an emergency room. And basically, what she wants to do is weed out the hypochondriacs that might come to the emergency room, you know, because they, they're, just, they're sick all the time. It's all in their heads. Well, look, you, for one, that's not up to you to determine. Do your job. See them. And then you determine from there, based on your professional opinion, whether or not they have a real illness or not. But you don't get to turn them away before you even see them. And furthermore, it shows how out of touch you are because people show up because they don't have insurance. They know damn well that they're going to get a huge medical bill. I have friends that did this all the time, where you go to the emergency room because you don't have insurance. And that's the only way you're going to get antibiotics if you're sick so i mean diane black you are a complete lunatic and to think that you're a nurse that really scares me i hope there are no other nurses that have your views of healthcare, because if so then that goes to show why so many people are dying in the country because of idiots like you for a nurse to say this what is wrong with you what are you thinking Roy Moore is a Republican U.S. Senate candidate currently running against Doug Jones in the state of Alabama, and Roy Moore is someone who most normal individuals would characterize as batshit insane, and this is because he has views that are literally theocratic. Not only does he think that homosexuality itself should be illegal, but he actually thinks that gay marriage is worse than slavery. Not even kidding. This is what he had to say about it.
4: Yes, sir. I I was simply pointing out in 1857 the United States Supreme Court did rule that black people were property. And of course that contradicted the Constitution and it took a civil war to overturn it. But this ruling in Obergefell is even worse in a sense because it forces not only people to recognize marriage other than the, the institution ordained of God and recognized by nearly every state in the Union. It says that you now must do away with the definition of marriage and make it between two persons of the same gender or leading on as one of the dissenting justices said to uh, polygamy to uh, multi uh, married uh, partner marriages we've got to go back and recognize that what they did in the Obergefell was not only to take and create a right that does not exist under the constitution but then to mandate that that right compels christians to give up their religious freedom and liberty you're so dumb you are really dumb for real
2: wow <laughs> what an idiot i'm just gonna call this uh he's probably a raging homosexual behind closed doors i mean how how could you be that personally offended by something that doesn't have any impact on your life unless you're gay and And you're angry at the fact that you grew up being told that homosexuality was a sin and you never got to live out, you know, your your homosexual desires. I mean, I I can't think of any other way or reason, anyways, why he would be so personally offended by homosexuality and gay marriage. It makes no sense. He also says here that um, gay marriage forces Christians to give up their religious freedom and liberty. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> makes sense how how does it do that how does two dudes marrying each other make you any less free how does it inhibit you from exercising your freedom of religion how he says this but he doesn't provide us with any examples he doesn't provide us with any facts or statistics to show how marriage equality in the united states actually somehow stifles the practice of religion. He doesn't because he's talking out of his ass. He's personally offended by homosexuality because he's old now, he's married to a woman, and he never had the chance or the opportunity to live out his homosexual fantasies. So this is why he's talking about it. Gay. Here's the thing about people like Roy Moore. It's only a matter of time before they are caught in some type of gay scandal of their own. And to suggest that he's only a lunatic because of his views on gay marriage would do a service to him because he is a lunatic across the board. He is a Republican wet dream. <laughs> that's not the right language to use uh, given the context of this discussion. But, you know, he, he's, he's a Republican that Southern conservatives are going to love and adore because he represents all of their old, outdated, draconian views that are no longer acceptable in American society. So look, here's the thing, Roy Moore. I'm sorry that you never got to be gay yourself when you really, really think dudes are attractive um, and you're lashing out now as a result. But um, we are not going to go back in time because you're triggered by homosexuality. Here's the thing. I'm married to a dude. My marriage is just as valid and legitimate under U.S. law as yours is. And if you don't like that, tough shit go cry about it So when it comes to net neutrality, really, there's no reason for anyone to be against it unless they're the CEO of one of several companies, Verizon, Comcast, AT&T, or Charter. Because if you're the CEO of one of those companies and net neutrality is repealed, then you're going to be raking in billions of dollars in profit for your company, but for all of us ordinary Americans, we don't stand to gain anything from the repeal of net neutrality. There's no argument that justifies the repeal of net neutrality because when you talk to ordinary Americans about net neutrality and ask them if they want the internet turned into a system like TV channels where you have to pay a certain amount of money for certain channels or websites now, obviously they're going to say no. Who would want that? Everybody wants net neutrality. We want internet freedom where we can log on and go to any website we want to. Of course we want that. So, really, I think this is a no-brainer, which is why the arguments against net neutrality are so atrocious. Now, we got an op-ed from The Hill by Matthew Kandretch. And he argues against net neutrality. And I wanted to point out his argument because it goes to show you that people who want to repeal net neutrality... Well, they're either shills for the industry or hacks for the Republican Party, and they're just towing the party line. So, Kandridge argues, investment declined around the Federal Communications Commission's 2015 absurd decision to reclassify internet service providers as common carriers under Title II of the 1934 Communications Act. That is to say, the FCC granted itself the power to subject internet service to higher regulation and taxation. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai noted that the overreaching misstep caused the United States to experience the first-ever decline in broadband investment outside of a recession. In fact, Pai said earlier this year broadband investment remains lower today than it was when the FCC changed course in 2015. So, this article is wrong in two ways. It's wrong, first of all, because in saying that there was a change, of course, from the FCC... In 2015, that's incorrect. All they did was solidify what was already law in the United States. We already had net neutrality and they just made it permanent by reclassifying the internet under Title II. So, to say that anything changed is incorrect. Now, this article is also wrong when it comes to the argument he's making. He says that investment decreased under, uh, under Title II. Since 2015, investment in broadband is down. Well, Why didn't you cite a single statistic? All throughout this article, not a single fact, no study, no report, nothing cited. He did cite Ajit Pai's argument, but just simply (laughs) regurgitating the argument of someone that agrees with you does not constitute as evidence. That's not evidence. So you can't just make these huge claims and not back it up with any statistics whatsoever. And the reason why he doesn't want to show you the evidence is because the evidence contradicts what he's saying because I've got the evidence. So, Business Insider actually reports that in a new report by a consumer advocacy group called Free Press, the group took a look at investments made by the publicly traded broadband companies before and after the Federal Communications Commission put in place its strong net neutrality rules in 2015. In the two-year period following the new rules, overall broadband-related investment among those companies was up 5% from the two-year period immediately preceding them, free press found, and if you exclude Sprint and AT&T, both of which decreased their investment after completing the build-out of their high-speed LTE networks, overall investment would have been up 9% according to the report. So, reclassifying the internet as a utility under Title II did not stifle investment. If anything, it helped Investment. It increased investment, although that's not confirmed because correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, but it certainly isn't hurting investment. So if you're wondering why this individual did not cite any statistics to back up his argument, it's because he doesn't want to cite anything that detracts From his pro corporate narrative. Now he continues By returning to common sense regulation that incentivizes broadband investment and expansion, we can build out more robust networks that keep the American dream alive for those striving to succeed in today's technology driven world. But agendas that are pushed by net roots activists and funded by tech giants and their billionaire friends that's hilarious. Stand to overturn good policy in the name of appeasing radical political interests. If successful, they will ultimately undermine what should be a politically neutral Goal of strengthening investments and ensuring broadband is made readily available to anyone who wants it. So if you want to talk about the influence of tech giants and billionaires, let's do it. Because companies like Comcast and Charter, they've already spent more than fifty million dollars on lobbying this year alone. And Comcast itself has spent almost $11 million. In fact, the Sunlight Foundation compared anti-net neutrality lobbying to pro-net neutrality lobbying and companies like Verizon, AT&T, and Comcast all of which who stand to gain the most from the destruction of net neutrality, well, they're the ones who are pushing for the repeal of net neutrality way more than proponents of net neutrality. And the reason why they're spending all this money on lobbying is because the return on investment, if they actually are able to successfully kill net neutrality, would be exponential. They'd they'd make all that money back and billions of dollars in profit. So if you honestly are going to say to me with a straight face that this is about tech giants and billionaires trying to influence policy and not point out how there is so much lobbying against net neutrality, then uh, I, I don't know what to say. You're just a joke. But he has one last thing to say here. America's internet story is being written anew every day, but rolling back the crippling Title II order of 2015 is essential to protect the internet's future and ensure we remain on a path of continued growth and innovation. Okay, Nothing changed when the internet was reclassified as a utility under Title II. If you think the internet is less free uh, today than it was back then, then go ahead and test it out. Go ahead and try visiting any website you can think of. Do you get a message from your internet service provider saying this website isn't included in your package? Well, you don't because the internet is currently free and open. So this is a journalist journalist. Who is lying to you? And it's not like we have to try to guess what's going to happen if net neutrality is repealed because our neighbors in Mexico actually don't have net neutrality. And guess what? Their internet looks just like television packages that are sold in the United States, where you have to pay more for packages that include different types of websites. What normal self-interested human being would support this unless they would make billions of dollars in profit? Nobody. Now, there's actually an article from TechCrunch that goes through most of these stupid arguments that a lot of these Republican industry shills are making, and it tells you why literally all of them are wrong. So, I will say it again. If you don't support net neutrality, well then, unless you are the CEO of Verizon Comcast AT or Charter, then you've been duped over by these industries that are going to make billions of dollars by ripping you off even more. So, this article is a complete joke, and I wanted to point it out because these arguments are terrible. No evidence to back up any of their claims that they're saying. They're trying to tell you that the internet changed once the internet became a utility under Title II. Um, When that's not true, because we all use the internet, we could see that there's been no difference. But certainly, without net neutrality, we know it would change for the worst because, again. We can look to other countries that don't have net neutrality. Looks pretty shitty. This week on Fox News, we had a representative from CampusReform.org come on the show, and this individual tried to dupe liberal college students into thinking that Donald Trump's tax reform plan is actually Bernie Sanders' plan. Now, the idea here is to show you just how dumb and biased college students really are because when you tell them about Donald Trump's tax plan or ask them about Donald Trump's tax plan, they'll say it's bad, it's terrible. But when you give them an actual policy from Donald Trump and tell them that this is Bernie Sanders' policy in actuality, well, then all of a sudden they support it. So the goal here is to kind of dupe them into showing just how liberal college students are brainwashed by their professors and whatnot um unfortunately for them the segment didn't go (laughs) nearly as well as they planned It, it was a complete fail so uh let's watch it and then afterwards we will make fun of it well a group of george washington university college students not so happy
5: about president trump's tax plan watch this
6: what were your thoughts on Trump's tax plan when you saw it? Um, it's very, it's v- better for the upper class than anyone else. Pretty much a,
1: uh, horrible for the middle class, especially the lower class.
5: I mean, not ideal. It's probably not the most efficient nor beneficial to the general populace.
6: But guess, guess what happened when students were told that that plan came from Bernie Sanders? Bernie is planning to lower the small business tax rate to a maximum of 25%. I think that's a positive or negative.
5: Um, I definitely think that's a positive. I feel very positively toward that. My family has a small business, so I would definitely think that's a positive thing. Taxing
6: them less makes more sense. Kevin Phillips is the media director and CampusReform.org, and he was the one interviewing those students and joins us now with more on this, and I can't wait to see the, hear about the insides of this. Absolutely. We saw how quickly President Trump and all conservatives' political opponents were to shut down this tax reform plan. They said it was evil, it was hateful. But it's funny, when they think the tax cuts are coming from a liberal candidate, they're suddenly compassionate. They're wonderful, they're beautiful, they're common sense. And once we told them that this was actually... President Trump's tax plan that they seem to love so much the responses were pretty fun I think people enjoy them what if I told you this actually is Donald Trump's tax plan not Bernie's you got me
2: <laughs> <laughs>
6: it is it's, it's Trump's plan
0: hello darkness my old friend
6: all of these are actually Trump's ideas it's actually Trump's plan wow <laughs> wow that's interesting that, wow I am shocked that I do agree with Trump on certain things interesting
2: I'm definitely happily surprised that it like sounds a lot better than I would have expected it to.
6: I think a lot of this says people, specifically college students, they may not be that opposed to conservative principles. They think that they have to oppose everything from the right. That's what they're taught in class. That's what they're taught by the media. But when it's just the principles themselves just not coming from conservatives, they realize, hey, this actually makes sense. But again, they're being indoctrinated daily by the media, by what they're learning in the classroom. And they think that because they're young, they have to oppose President Trump and his agenda. It's that, you know, shoot the messenger, don't shoot the messenger. It's basically who it's coming from. Yep. the plan itself yep. or the the talking points are fine but you're saying because of who it comes from like i don't know it can't be good then but exactly maybe you taught
4: them a lesson maybe going forward now they will think twice about these plans and whether they like them or not, and who they're coming from.
6: <laughs> well, that's the goal: to get people and Americans as a whole to look at the issues. Don't right. look at who's presenting them. It doesn't have to be a tribalist mentality. Look at the issues, decide based on what's best for our country, what's best for individual families. That's what people can decide an issue. Don't look at if there's an R or a D next to the name. Actually, okay. many of the students came out at the end and said, "Look, I understand. I probably have a bias towards Trump." One student said, "Trump could give me ice cream," and I look at him and say, "What's in that ice cream?" Because I don't trust who it's at coming from. At least they admit it, though. At least Adam. they admit it, though. That's a start. Admitting, you know, denial yeah, yeah. is the first step, admitting a problem. Well, that's very effective to waking them up. If you love your country, I expect you to go to every college campus and do the same thing. I'll do it. Glad nice We'll do a Fox and Friends segment. You've heard it. Kevin, you heard
2: that it was fabulous. Here. Well nice done, work. great job. That was borderline cringeworthy. It was a complete and utter failure. You don't get to pretend as though you were able to successfully dupe college students into thinking that Trump's tax plan is Bernie Sanders if you don't even show us the fucking footage. We saw a couple of responses from students, but you didn't show us the whole thing. And the reason why they likely believed that Bernie Sanders wants to cut taxes on small businesses is because Bernie Sanders' policies would do a lot to help small businesses. Not only would he save them more money with his Medicare for All plan since they would no longer have to purchase health insurance for their employees, but Bernie Sanders wants to help small business owners by making it easier for them to qualify for low-interest loans. And he actually did this by helping to pass the Small Business Jobs Act. And it doesn't just stop there because Bernie Sanders is also trying to help small business owners on the internet by fighting to protect net neutrality. So you don't get to imply condescendingly so, that these students are dumb because they believe that Bernie Sanders would take steps to help small businesses. Because Bernie Sanders would take steps to help small businesses, be it in the form of a tax cut or making it easier for them to qualify for low interest loans. And what Bernie Sanders wants to do is actually help small businesses. Emphasis on small, not multi-million dollar companies that Donald Trump pretends are small businesses. And that's not to say that Donald Trump's tax plan is 100% terrible, because yes, doubling the standard deduction, that is something that would benefit the middle class. However, there are costs and benefits with that, because it's not just like he's going to double the standard deduction and the middle class will get that and they'll be happy. End of story. He's also cutting Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, because you can't pay for tax cuts this large without dipping into social safety nets. So even though the middle class might benefit once a year from that standard deduction, they're going to get screwed over in other ways when Social Security gets cut, when Medicare and Medicaid gets cut. So it's not all well and good, even though there are some aspects of Donald Trump's tax reform plan that are seemingly beneficial to the middle class. Well, the middle class is just going to get screwed over in an indirect way. And the problem with Donald Trump's tax plan is is that it overwhelmingly benefits the wealthiest people in the country. And look, let me ask you this. If you really wanted to prove that these students are dumb and they're just biased in favor of Bernie Sanders and they don't think for themselves, then why didn't you tell them that it was Bernie Sanders' idea to repeal the estate tax? Well, it's because these college students are not dumb and they probably would have called you on your bullshit. But if they did that, then that wouldn't help you with your narrative because you're trying to paint this disingenuous narrative where college students are being uh, brainwashed and indoctrinated by their liberal professors and they can't think for themselves. But again, if you if you really wanted to prove that they were dumb, I can't think of a better way to do that than to get them to think that Bernie Sanders is in favor of of repealing the estate tax. Now, the representative that they brought on from campusforum.org, we know that he's disingenuous because he was brazenly lying about what people said in the clip that we just watched. So he said that they described Donald Trump's tax plan as, quote, evil and hateful, but you just showed us the clip. They didn't call it evil and hateful. If that's not the case, then show us more of the clip. But I I have their quotes here. This is how they describe Donald Trump's tax plan. Quote, it's better for the upper class than anyone else. That's true. Uh, It's horrible for the middle class, especially the lower class. That's true. It's not ideal. Also true. Another student said here, it's probably not the most efficient nor beneficial to the general populace. So you're trying to lie to us and tell us that the students said one thing. When they really didn't say that when we just saw the clip that you showed us how are you going to, seriously with the straight face tell us that they said something that they didn't when we just saw the footage now if he's implying that there was additional footage that we didn't see then you have to show us the whole clip we got to see two seconds of the students talking so really if it is the case that they called donald trump's plan hateful and evil then you have to show us that footage you can't assert that they did that because that makes you look like a liar and probably my favorite part about this clip here is how the the hosts, were laughing at just how biased the students were. The irony was just completely lost on them, I guess. (laughs) So, I mean, what a complete failure by Fox News. Just, you, you tried to make them look dumb, but you didn't show us footage where they actually looked dumb, and you... You, you tried to make them think that the most reasonable component of Trump's tax reform plan was Bernie Sanders when clearly they wouldn't fall for it if you came up with something that was just a brazen giveaway to the rich from Bernie Sanders uh, from Donald Trump they wouldn't believe that that was Bernie Sanders so this was just a complete failure a complete failure and i love how they tried to meme these students i'm sorry but after watching this clip you are the ones that deserve to be memed because this was a failure. You can't dupe over college students who actually are aware and paying attention to news and politics. They would have never bought that Bernie Sanders would be in favor of repealing the estate tax. They would have never bought that because they are informed. And if you think that they're dumb for believing Bernie Sanders supports small businesses, um, they're not because he does support small businesses. So this whole clip was just I, I don't know what the goal was here, but if if that was really the footage that they got, I would have just not aired that because it, it, it was embarrassing for them. But this is Fox News, you know? They have no shame. It, it doesn't matter if this made them look like shit and made them look incredibly disingenuous. <laughs> they don't care. They're Fox News. Hello,
0: darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly
4: creeping. Congratulations, you played yourself.
2: This week on Real Time with Bill Maher, we had more rich Richsplaining, because apparently all of you dumb peasants didn't realize that you were being taken advantage of by Russian trolls. Who invaded social media and got you to fight with your fellow Americans and ultimately side with Republicans? (laughs) Makes sense. So, in this clip, you're going to see him explain what Russia did to influence American politics and ultimately the 2016 election. And he is going to propose a solution as to what we should do in response to Russia's um, attack on our democracy, alleged attack on our democracy.
3: New rule, if Russia is going to keep attacking America, then America really should fight back. The, you know, the conventional wisdom is that in the 1980s, Saint Ronald Reagan defeated the Soviet, <laughs> defeated the Soviet Union. And then the Berlin Wall came down and everybody was friends. But what really happened was we stopped fighting the Cold War, but the Russians never did. They may have changed the name of the KGB the way Kentucky Fried Chicken became KFC, but (laughs) trust me, they're both still out there poisoning people. There is an entire building in St. Petersburg filled with a Russian troll army. Hundreds of employees of their defense department sitting in front of computers, pretending to be Americans, and creating thousands of tweets, memes, news site comments, and flat-out fake stories designed not to take sides on any issue, but just to get us fighting about it, to create chaos. The better to elect the chaos candidate. Here's an example of a Russian created meme from 2016. It says, up to 5.7 million illegals may have voted in 2008 election. Well, that of course is ridiculous, but it nevertheless reached 10 million American voters by way of Facebook, millions more through Twitter, and one guy on Bing. Hillary Clinton spent over a billion dollars on the campaign, and the Russians beat her with 150 grand because they were able to turn Facebook into Fakebook. Or a more apt name might be Shitstarter. (laughs) Because that's what they were doing. That's what their meddling was meant to do. Start shit. And boy, was that easy to do, since Facebook is the place where thinking went to die. (laughs) All the time, people used to just waste reading books and newspapers. Well, now they're sharing. Sharing. Isn't it great that we all share? <laughs> Putin thinks it's great. That's why he only had to spend 150 grand. Because we spread his propaganda for him. And it really bugs me that Facebook took that word and rat fucked it. Sharing, as I recall it, meant actually giving something of yours away to another. Another kid forgot his lunch. You gave him half of yours. Sharing. But how is it sharing to send me a picture of your lunch? That's just saying, (laughs) I've got food and you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Facebook sharing isn't sharing. It's mostly humble bragging. Oh, so embarrassed. Didn't realize there was a hole in the knee of my jeans and now my penis was showing. (laughs) It's a lot of that bullshit and it's a healthy amount of, here's something I want you to know I have. For something called sharing, there's an awful lot of, look at me. Look how talented my kids are. Look what great concert seats I have. Look. (laughs) I'm in Italy, and you're in Pacoima. (laughs) And the Russians saw this, and they took our everyone-needs-to-smell-my-every-brain-fart culture (laughs) and used it as the engine for spreading their bullshit for the purpose of starting cockfights. Except we're the cocks. We're the brainless birds pecking at each other. That's what Putin knew. That with social media, it would be easy to get America to start cockfighting. He just made sure
2: the tiniest cock won. The extent to which he is out of touch, it still continues to puzzle me because before the 2016 election, I actually think that Bill Maher was one of the few comedians that had pretty good insight on American politics, but he just... He went from Bill Maher to Shilmar. And anything that the Democratic Party establishment pushes, he just takes it as gospel. Now, he says here, if Russia is going to keep attacking America, then America really should fight back. See, when you say things like this, you have to be really clear, Bill, because when you say fight back, you have viewers who are impressionable that might get the idea that war with Russia is justified when it's not. I don't think any election being allegedly meddled with, is grounds to wage war with the country. Now, I'm not saying that this is what Bill Maher wants, but you can't just use those types of words in a cavalier way and not clarify what you mean. When you say fight back, you have to tell us how you want to fight back, because that can have really dangerous implications. When you hear rhetoric from the likes of Dick Cheney and Donna Brazile, they say that we were actually attacked by Russia. This Constitutes as an attack. Hillary Clinton said that this was our cyber 9 11. So when you use this type of inflammatory rhetoric, like we have to fight back, you can't just say that and not clarify what you mean because that could lead people down a very dangerous path to where they are giving our elected officials the green light to attack another country when that would not be justifiable. Now, he also states here, um, that the Russian trolls, you know, they tried to create chaos and divide Americans. We were already divided, Bill, before this election, and that's not going to end anytime soon. Not only is polarization at the highest point, I believe, since the Civil War, but we're also polarized internally among the left and the right. I mean, you have the neoliberal versus progressive battle going on you have the establishment republicans against the alt-right anti-establishment white supremacist nazi sympathizing republicans i mean we we all hate each other we are all divided in this country so russians couldn't possibly divide us any more than we were already divided now he also says here which was odd to me hillary clinton spent over a billion dollars on the campaign and the russians beat her with 150 grand because they were able to turn Facebook into fake book. Okay, let me ask you this, Bill. Did they actually beat her with the measly $150,000, which is chump change in today's political climate? Or was it the case that people just don't like Hillary Clinton? I think we all know the answer to this, but you know, the problem with a lot of neoliberals is that they just can't fathom how people don't like Hillary Clinton, especially when she was up against a monster like Donald Trump. Well, I've explained this to you. Yes, obviously it was the case that Hillary Clinton was the lesser of two evils and still is, in my opinion. The problem is that people have to have something to vote for and not against. You don't mobilize voters. They're not going to be galvanized to come out and vote against someone. They vote for candidates, not against Candidates and Hillary Clinton gave them nothing, so I don't think that one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of troll advertising from Russia had any impact on the election. It was inconsequential. I, certainly, it didn't affect me because all the news and information I got about the Hillary Clinton that made me dislike her came from her own mouth. Health emergencies.
6: Can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better
5: idea that will never, ever come to pass.
2: Unless Russia was somehow able to hack into Hillary Clinton and get her to say these things, then that would be the only way that Russia influenced me. Now, he also says here that Facebook is the place where thinking went to die. I actually agree with him here, because we all have that conservative uncle on Facebook that constantly posts... You know these conservative memes that are just sheer bullshit, complete misinformation. In fact, when I first started the Humanist Report, I did a video debunking conservative memes that were either idiotic or just they spread misinformation. So the problem is that as Americans, we have got to be responsible consumers of media. If you're getting your news from a meme on Facebook, then that's a problem. We have to raise our standard of scrutiny in this country. We can't just accept anything that someone tells us. We have to question the memes that that we see. We have to question news that we see on our Facebook news feed. And yes, you have to question people like me who share my opinion with you, but you need to question what my intentions are, what my motives are. We have to raise our standard of judgment collectively in this country so this type of propaganda and misinformation doesn't actually have an impact on elections. But to suggest that misinformation is something that's new, it's not new. I mean, these fake political memes that get spread, this was a problem back on on MySpace when Obama was running in 2008. I remember arguing with one of my cousins about them. So this isn't anything new. We just have to be smarter and realize that if we're getting our news from a meme that we saw on Facebook... Probably not the best idea. And even if you were somehow able to eliminate Russians from the equation altogether, there's still going to be a lot of fake news that's being spread, which is why we have to be more responsible when... We choose to believe information that doesn't have facts or statistics cited. Now, he's given the Russian trolls here a lot more credit than they deserve, but really I want to I talk about what Jimmy Carter has to say because I think that he put it best. He says, I don't think there's any evidence that what the Russians did changed enough votes or any votes. That's what it comes down to. That's the truth. We don't have evidence that what they did changed votes. I mean, what they're saying now is that we have Russian trolls who use Pokemon Go To sow discord among the American people, we have a Daily Beast article saying that Russian trolls were posing as Dakota Access pipeline protesters. They're posing as black activists. So when I see that, (laughs) I don't see how that is consequential. At all. If anything, it seems as though these Russian trolls care more about really important issues than the Democratic Party does. These trolls wanted us to have clean drinking water they cared about, police brutality against people of color in this country. They sound like lovely people, honestly. They're playing Pokemon Go, so they're into American pop culture. (laughs) Look, here's, here's what I really want to get back to, though, because I think this is important. When he says that if Russia's going to keep attacking America, that we really should fight back, this is really, really harmful rhetoric. We have to avoid saying things like this. Um, especially if we're not going to clarify what we mean, because in saying we're going to fight back, saying America should fight back against another nuclear power, I mean, the connotations there, it's negative. It's all negative. So you have to, you can't say things like this without clarifying what you mean, Bill. But I wish Bill Maher would actually try to be introspective and figure out why uh, Hillary Clinton lost, but he's just in this whole, you know, Anything anyone tells me is wrong unless they are um, validating my worldview and I don't want to hear anything from progressives. So, you know, keep on being clueless, Bill, and wondering why Hillary Clinton lost. Um, Because if you don't want to talk to progressives, then you're not going to get the answer you claim to be looking for. So, as you all know, last week, CNN hosted a debate between Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz about tax reform and... I was not necessarily intending on covering that because it aired after I finished recording the last episode of the show, and I didn't have time to cover it over the weekend, so I just thought, you know what, I'll catch the next debate, but I ended up watching it on Sunday, I caught it late. And I couldn't not talk about it because I think that this was the best performance from Bernie Sanders yet. I think that this debate was probably even more embarrassing for Ted Cruz than his infamous porn tweet debacle. Because I mean, Bernie Sanders articulated exactly why Ted Cruz was towing the Republican Party line when it comes to tax policy. And this was because he was paid to do that. He is a shill that was literally corrupted by big money donors. I mean, Ted Cruz likes to pretend to be an anti-establishment Republican. But we all know that's not the case. He is corrupt, just like the political establishment, particularly his own party. And he's bought off by the Koch brothers and really all of the most egregious figures in politics. So Bernie Sanders explained that Ted Cruz came to the policy positions that he's at now because he was bought off. And Bernie Sanders brought up money in politics on multiple occasions. And I thought that it was just great because it exposed the fraud that Ted Cruz really is. Why do you think the Koch
1: brothers and Ted Cruz's major donors, billionaires, are supporting these proposals? Do you think they're staying up nights worrying about working families? Do you think they're worried about kids who can't afford to go to college? Do you think they're worried about elderly people? who can't keep their homes warm in the wintertime. They are not. You got one group of people, the Koch brothers, two people worth over $95 billion. They are going to spend $300 million alone in this campaign cycle to do what? To pass legislation that protects the interests of the wealthy and the powerful and to support candidates like Senator Cruz who will do just that. It is nonsensical. I have
2: sat with farmer after farmer after farmer. that has a lot of land. So under Bernie's definition, they're rich. They've got a lot of land and they go broke every year planning and and
1: paying people's salaries and barely making ends meet. And yet the death tax would make them sell their farm. That's not fair and it's not right. That's a good speech. Thank you. But it has nothing to do with reality. (laughs) I appreciate that. (laughs) Here's the reality. (laughs) You know, After Trump and people like Senator Cruz go around saying, oh, it's mostly the workers and the farmers and the ranchers who are going to pay the estate tax. Steve Mnuchin, who is our secretary of treasury, this is what he said. And I quote, obviously, the estate tax, I will concede, disproportionately helps rich people. Yeah, it helps rich people. The top two tenths of one percent, ninety nine point eight percent of families, of somebody who died, do not pay a nickel in the estate tax. Factcheck.org said, quote, less than 1% of farm operators, less than 1% of farm operator estates is projected to pay any estate tax. Tax Policy Center said, quote, only an estimated 80 small farms will pay any estate tax in 2017. Center on Budget and Policy Priorities said only the wealthiest two-tenths of 1% will pay estate tax. Here's who the beneficiaries are. And this is why the Koch brothers are spending so much money to see this legislation passed. Their family will benefit to the tune of some $30 billion. So spending a few hundred million dollars to elect people like Senator Cruz is
2: is pocket change (laughs) if you're going to a family is going to get 30 billion so what i really liked about bernie sanders performance is that prior to the debate he anticipated what bullshit arguments ted cruz would be using and he was able to prepare by bringing specific facts to debunk anything ted cruz was saying so he talked about the estate tax and how that disproportionately harms farmers according to ted cruz but bernie sanders actually came with the facts and said, no, this isn't actually the case. When it comes to the estate tax, it's it's a brazen giveaway to the rich. That's all that the estate tax does. It just benefits really rich families like the Trumps and the Waltons. And Bernie Sanders made that case. So everything that Ted Cruz tried to say, there was no getting past Bernie Sanders. He had an answer for everything. And there was no moment during this debate where I thought, man, even though I disagree with Ted Cruz, I think that he is debating in a more effective way. I never thought that once during this whole debate. Bernie Sanders did a phenomenal job at explaining exactly why donors like to buy off Republican politicians, but also Democratic politicians too. But I mean, he used the example of the Koch brothers in tax policy. The reason why they spend millions on campaigns is because the return on investment is absolutely huge but what ted cruz then tried to do since he wasn't able to really win this debate based on the merit of his arguments he tried to just jab bernie sanders here and there so he threw in socialists um to smear bernie sanders and bernie sanders was not having it one of the things i like about debating bernie is he's honest when he ran in vermont he ran as a socialist, an unabashed no,
3: socialist.
2: No, I
1: ran as and, an independent, longest-serving independent in the history of the United States uh, Congress. Are you a socialist or not? I am a democratic socialist, okay. similar oh, to the folks. Okay. But don't tell me I didn't run as a socialist. Okay. I ran you, as an you told people you were a socialist, fine, fine. You didn't run as a right winger. You ran as a Republican, right? <laughs> I, I am happily a
2: conservative. Conservative. All right.
1: I, I am happily a conservative.
2: Now you've really got to pay close attention to the look on Ted Cruz's face because you can tell that. Bernie Sanders was embarrassing him because how could you not with the stupid arguments he was making? I mean, what Ted Cruz was saying, it was idiotic and you don't even really have to look up things he were saying in order to debunk it. I mean, his arguments were just, you could dismiss them at face value. Now, one in particular was an argument he made about Cuba. As a Cuban American, I have a different way of looking at it, something liberals never seem to notice. If you go down to Key West, the rafts from Cuba are all come in one direction. We don't see any Hollywood liberals jumping on rafts and heading to Cuba for free health care because it doesn't work in practice. It's a disaster in practice. These liberals are so dumb because they never seem to realize that all the rafts coming from Cuba, they're always flowing in one direction. Really, Ted? That's that's your argument? That statement almost made Bernie Sanders head explode. Guess what? I'm going to blow your mind, Ted. It's closer. If you are from Cuba and you're trying to flee an oppressive regime, why would you choose to risk your life even more and try to go to Europe or try to go to Canada? I mean, you're going to come to the United States because it's closer. And he also said here we don't see any Hollywood liberals jumping on rafts and heading to Cuba for healthcare, and that's because it doesn't work in practice. Well, first of all, there's been an embargo on Cuba. Since most of us were born, so we weren't allowed to go there even if we wanted to. And second of all, there was at least one Hollywood liberal that did jump on a raft and go to Cuba. Michael Moore. It's so hard for me to digest somebody saying it's free. Because 20 years of our lives have been I spent fighting. So I'm, I, I, I am so
4: grateful. I, I don't know. You don't need to say that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Okay. Now, the reason why those Americans were so emotional was because they just they couldn't comprehend the level of care that they were receiving from a country that our leaders have demonized for decades. That was the perceived enemy. But they were getting free health care that was actually quality health care. Now, just because you may disagree with Cuba politically and look down upon their political situation, that doesn't mean that we can't learn from them, at least when it comes to healthcare, because even if we disagree with their regime, well, we can still learn when it comes to healthcare. Because just because one aspect of a country is bad doesn't mean that every single aspect about it is bad. And just objectively speaking, there's a lot that we can learn from Cuba. But the problem with this country is that We are either incapable of learning from other countries, or we just don't want to learn. We bury our heads in the sand. And speaking of other countries, there was someone in the audience from Denmark that was a Republican, seemingly, he was conservative, and he was brought on to make Bernie Sanders look bad, since Bernie Sanders always talks about Scandinavia, but unbeknownst to this individual who was there, uh, presumably to make Ted Cruz look better, he ended up helping Bernie Sanders' argument... And after he sat down, Bernie Sanders brought him back to ask him a question about healthcare, and it was just—it was genius what Bernie Sanders
0: was able to do. I was born and grew up in Denmark, uh, and you know these are countries which where the government spends taxes and spends approximately twice the level of the United States. Mm-hmm. And while I am very sympathetic to many of your spending proposals, especially on the things you mentioned on early childhood and single payer and the like, I also know that these are countries that heavily tax everybody, not just the rich people, middle classes, they have consumption taxes mm-hmm. on everything of 20%. So while I'm very sympathetic to what you say, my, my sense is still that you would like to spend as a Scandinavian, but not tax as one.
1: Is well, that correct? Well, we have, the answer is, you raise some very good points. When we talk about healthcare, for example, okay, what my proposal would do, as I'm sure you understand, how much do you pay or the people in Denmark pay for health care when they go to the doctor?
0: There is an approximate, the, if I'm about $10 copay for everybody.
1: $10. And how much do you pay when you go to the hospital? If you have cancer, God forbid, and you went to the hospital, how much would it cost you? Zero. Oh, of you zero. And how much is preschool in high-quality preschool for the children in Denmark?
0: It would depend a little bit on the region of the country, but I'd say in two or three hundred dollars a month.
1: Two or three hundred dollars a month. Okay. And what about college in Denmark? Our kids can't afford to go to college. How much does it cost to go to college in Denmark?
0: Well, in fact, you get a government stipend to go to college.
1: In other words, not only is it free they give you a stipend because they want to make sure correct me if I'm wrong, that they take advantage of the wisdom of all of the kids. They want to make sure that every kid in that country gets the best education he or she can have. Is that correct?
0: If you have the uh, appropriate grade, uh, right? You exactly. Have, yes.
1: Yeah. Exactly. All right. So here is the point, and your point is well taken: to provide quality, virtually free childcare, to provide free higher education, to provide f- virtually free healthcare. It costs money. Nothing is free. Taxes are high. You're right. But I would suggest that the average American would rather pay $3,000 more in taxes and see a $5,000 premium to a private insurance company disappear. They will be better off. In Denmark, my guess is, please correct me if I'm wrong, probably the per capita cost in health care is half what it is in the United States. Is that a good guess?
0: Approximately, yes. Okay.
1: So the point is, they are able to run a high quality health care system, probably better than ours, at half of the cost, because it's a public health care system. But to answer your point, and it's a fair point, nothing is for free. But I believe in a kind of society which is different than Ted's does. I want to see all of our people, the young people, the old, the poor, the working class, be able to get the education they need, the health care they need, the job training they need. Does it cost money to do that? It does. But I believe at the end of the day, that is the kind of nation that the American people would like to see us become. You heard his remarks about the, you're with the Peterson Institute, which is a conservative group. So I'm talking to somebody who is a conservative, all right. How bad is the, and I don't know the answer, you tell me, is the Danish healthcare system also terrible?
0: No, I mean, I think the general characterization of, of sort of waiting lists across the board is vastly incorrect. And I'll give you the example of my mother, who was hospitalized with cancer. Uh, she was treated, you know, in a matter of one or two days. Uh, and this is true on a, on a number of issues. So, so the demonization of healthcare systems in Europe is, is just, it's just not true.
2: So that clip demonstrates just one of the many instances where Bernie Sanders took an argument that was used to demonize him and he turned it around and used that to bolster his own argument. So clearly, I think that when I listen to these two debate, there's really no competition. Bernie Sanders, he's the most popular politician in the country because the message that he is articulating, it's, it's easy to digest. He's explaining it in the most sensible way ever. He's telling us that we don't have to be a country that lets people die if they get sick. We don't have to be a country that continues to give tax cuts to the wealthiest Americans while poor people are starving. We don't have to be like that. We can be like other countries. We can learn from other countries. And we can not just have a better healthcare system, but one of the best in the world if we actually try and if we get money out of politics. So... Bernie Sanders, I mean, this was a commanding performance from him. I think everything about it... It just, it made Ted Cruz look really bad. And I hope that there is future debates because all of this is helping Bernie Sanders in 2020. It's really, it's adding to the case. It's increasing his name recognition. He's, he's able to get his message out there, which is really important because when he talks about Medicare for all and there's always this discussion about raising taxes as a result of Medicare for all, he's getting more opportunities through these debates to explain. Yeah. Even if your taxes go up, You're going to have more money in your pocket because you will no longer have to pay your monthly healthcare premiums. And that's an incredibly important argument to make. So I would say that Bernie Sanders' performance here was near perfect. And the only thing I would add to improve Bernie Sanders' performance was I would would say, I would suggest to him to bring up the porn tweet just because... You know Ted Cruz is going. <laughs> Ted Cruz is going to be so embarrassed from that he's going to try to hide his face. Um, I think that that would be the only thing I would improve. But Bernie, Bernie killed it. it this was an ass whooping, um, unlike anything we've seen from Bernie Sanders before. And it wasn't even that he was aggressive. He just came prepared with the facts. And so, if Bernie Sanders is able to pummel Ted Cruz in a debate like this then I have no doubt in my mind that he would utterly destroy Donald Trump in a debate, someone who is less articulate than Ted Cruz and exponentially more idiotic than Ted Cruz. Bernie Sanders, not only would he would have won, that sentence didn't sound right, but he would have won in 2016, but if he does run in 2020, it's going to be an ass whooping like we've never seen against Donald Trump, and I think that this just shows it right there. So kudos to Bernie. Well, that's all I got for you guys today. This has been a long episode. <laughs> I, I didn't have as much topics planned for this week as I did last week, but I mean, we spent a lot of time on some of these topics. So I'm starting to lose my voice, as you could tell. Um, so I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, certainly, you know, I, I like talking about these issues. I think that they're important. So even if I lose my voice. It needs to happen uh, because I think that the mainstream media, they're not doing their job, so somebody's got to do the job for them that they're failing to do, Um, and that that comes on the backs of independent media commentators like myself. Media revolt, right? So anyways, as usual, I want to send a huge shout-out to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors. Thank you so much for helping us to not just survive, but thrive as well. It's incredibly important. Patreon.com slash Humanist Report if you want to support the show yourself. So I will see you all next week. Um, Yeah, I'm going to go take a nap. (laughs) Take care.